Hey Future Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. And I'm Andy. And we are the hosts of Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Each week, we'll dive into some of the most unnerving crimes that this unnatural world has to offer. Listen for Unnatural on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Guys, I'm really sorry about this long break between episodes. Um, I've got a lot going on. I'm actually getting married next month, so I've been really busy lately, but here I am today, and today we're going to talk about two celebrities, Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, also known as the Notorious B.I.G., Over the past 25 years or so, there have been a lot of rumors and gossip and conspiracy theories regarding what actually happened to Tupac Shakur and whether or not their deaths were related to the East Coast-West Coast rivalry. This is a really complex story, so I'm going to do my best to give you guys all the important and pertinent information, but this is going to be more of an overview. If you'd like more information after this episode, I highly recommend the book Murder Rap by Greg Kading, as well as the documentary that's based on that book. I believe that documentary is actually coming to Netflix later this year. If you were in the United States in the 1990s, you probably remember the East Coast-West Coast rivalry, at the center of which were Tupac and Biggie. It was more than Tupac and Biggie, actually. It was the recording studios that both of them were a part of. On the west side in California was Death Row Records. This was the label that Tupac was a part of, along with Suge Knight. On the east coast in New York was Bad Boy Entertainment, with Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy. For this episode, I'm just going to call him Puffy. I just, P. Diddy just reminds me of, like, duty. Like, I'm going to go take a P. Diddy now. This is actually still considered a cold case. Unofficially, this crime might actually be solved. However, there wasn't enough evidence for the police departments to be able to close the case and charge anyone with it. I'll explain a little bit more about that later on. A lot of people theorize that Tupac died as a result of a hit that was organized by his producer, Suge Knight. Others believe that it was a hit organized by Puff Daddy and Biggie Smalls. So I'm going to share with you guys all the evidence that has been gathered, as well as what is believed to have happened leading up to the deaths of both Tupac Shakur, and Biggie Smalls. Most of the information I'm going to give you is from Detective Greg Kading. Tupac Shakur was born on June 16, 1971, in the East Harlem section of Manhattan in New York City. He was raised by his mother, Afini, who was a leader in the Black Panther Party in New York City during the 1960s and 70s. Afini became pregnant with Tupac while she was out on bail for conspiracy charges, stemming from a supposed plot to bomb department stores and police stations. She was arrested with 20 other members of the Black Panther Party, called the Panther 21. Afini's bail was revoked, and she ended up spending most of her pregnancy in jail. She was released just a month before Tupac was born. Afini married a guy named Mutulu Shakur, who was also a member of the Black Panther Party. He had a son named Maurice, also known as Moprim Shakur, and he and Afini would have another child who would be Tupac's younger half-sister. 
1981, Mutulu was arrested for participating in attempted armed robbery that ended in the deaths of two police officers and a security guard. The family then moved to Baltimore, Maryland. Effini had a hard time finding work, and she started using crack. This was a pretty dark time for Tupac, but he found solace in poetry and theater, and he attended the Baltimore School of Arts, which Effini says saved his life. Towards the end of high school, Tupac's family moved to California. He got in touch with his stepbrother, Mo Prem, and the two of them kind of dabbled in drug dealing. And then they came up with Thug Life, which was actually kind of like a code of ethics for drug dealing. Kind of like a truce among gangs so that people didn't get caught in crossfire anymore. And they were somewhat careful about crack getting into the wrong hands because, like, Tupac had seen firsthand how it affected his own family. He became really focused on his music and eventually became a roadie for the digital underground Shock G, also known as Humpty Hump. Tupac signed with Interscope Records in 1991. His debut album was called Tupacalypse Now and it was released in November of that year. It was said that Tupac was never really that violent of a guy up until the end of his life. Some say that the change happened around 1992 when he did the movie Juice. In the movie, he played a guy who was addicted to the thrill of killing following a botched robbery, and it's said that when he saw himself playing this character at the premiere, he was never the same. Others say that the change happened after he joined Death Row Records. Either way, at some point, Tupac started hanging out with gang members and started acting like them. One thing about gangster rap is that often these artists would act tough and they would talk about gang life and stuff like that, but most of them didn't really have a rap sheet. A lot of times they said that when they were working on music, they didn't really actually have time to do gangster things. But Tupac did start to develop his own rap sheet. In 1992, he drew a legally registered gun during a fan meet and greet after a convention. This was an outdoor convention and he was talking to fans and signing autographs and some guy just came up to him and started talking shit to him. Things kind of became hostile between them and Tupac ended up drawing his gun. I don't know if he intended to shoot the guy or if he was just trying to threaten and scare him, but he ended up dropping the gun. Someone in his entourage went to pick it up, and as he did, the gun went off, and it actually shot a six-year-old boy in the head, killing him instantly. No charges were filed, but Tupac did pay the family a half-million-dollar settlement. Just eight months later, he did 10 days in jail after he swung a baseball bat at a guy during a concert in Michigan. Just a few months after that, he was involved in a gun battle with a couple of off-duty police officers, and he shot one of them in the ass. There was also an occasion after a taping of In Living Color. He beat up the limo driver because he had complained about Tupac smoking weed. He was never charged for that crime. In 1993, Tupac met fellow rapper Christopher Wallace, also known as Biggie Smalls or the Notorious B.I.G. Biggie Smalls was born May 21, 1972 in the city of Brooklyn, New York. It's said that he was dealing drugs as young as 12 years old. He was also a raptor, and although he was getting some recognition, he wasn't really known all that much outside of Brooklyn. So he flew to California to meet Tupac, who was already an established rapper. And the two got along really well. They hung out at Tupac's place playing with unloaded hand and machine guns while Tupac grilled some steaks. They would often stay with each other when they traveled to each other's cities. Tupac kind of mentored Biggie. He gave him advice, and he would let him on stage to rap for his shows. Biggie actually wanted Tupac to be his manager, but Tupac instead directed him to Sean Combs, also known as Puff Daddy or P. Diddy or Diddy, saying that he would make him a star. 
Coffee founded Bad Boy Entertainment in 1993, and he signed Biggie Smalls as well as other artists like Faith Evans, 112, Total, and Father MC. His debut album, Ready to Die, included hits like Juicy and Big Papa, and made him the central figure in East Coast hip-hop, restoring New York's availability in a time when West Coast hip-hop was dominating the hip-hop music scene. Meanwhile, Tupac was falling further and further into the criminal world. He started hanging out with a guy named Haitian Jack, who was like, the baddest of the bad guys. I mean, this guy robbed drug dealers, and even Biggie told him not to fuck with him. Tupac was actually hanging out with Haitian Jack when he would commit one of the worst acts of his life. In November 1993, Tupac, Haitian Jack, and two other men were accused of sodomizing a woman in Tupac's hotel room. The woman's name was Ayanna Jackson, and she alleged that she hooked up with Tupac at the club and gave him oral sex there. And then a few days later, she went to his hotel room, and that's when Tupac, along with Haitian Jack, Tupac's road manager Charles Fuller, and a fourth man, allegedly forced her to perform oral sex on each of them. Tupac was also charged with illegal possession of a firearm as he had two guns that were found in the hotel room. Tupac would go on the Arsenio Hall show and deny this completely. However, he did later admit to being in the next room and regretted not doing anything to stop it. He was sentenced to one and a half to four and a half years in prison. Haitian Jack pleaded out on two misdemeanors. And in Tupac's mind, this meant that Haitian Jack must have snitched on him and set him up to take the fall. And Tupac made his feelings known and called out Haitian Jack in the press. On November 30th, 1994, Tupac was headed to Quad Recording Studios in Times Square to record a verse for another artist named Little Sean. He walked into the building, and just as he was about to enter the elevator, three guys wearing army fatigues approached him. The army fatigue style was common in Brooklyn, so he kind of assumed that these guys were friends with Biggie Smalls. Just before the elevator doors opened, the guys pulled out guns. Tupac went for his gun, but as he tried to pull it out of his waistband, he accidentally pulled the trigger and shot himself. Then the guys beat the shit out of him and stole all his jewelry. When they left, he stumbled into the elevator and took it up. Coincidentally, Biggie and Puffy were also at Quad Studios recording that day. As it turned out, the bad boy crew was actually friends with Little Sean and his crew. When the elevator doors opened, Tupac was met with three people. Biggie Smalls, Puffy, and a guy named Henchman Rosemond. Now, Henchman Rosemond was the manager of Little Sean, but he was also a friend of Haitian Jack's. Tupac later said that when he looked into the eyes of Biggie and Puffy, they looked surprised and guilty, and he was absolutely convinced that they were behind the attack. In 2011, a guy named Dexter Isaac admitted to being one of the guys who beat up Tupac, adding that it was under the direct orders of henchmen working on behalf of Haitian Jack. Tupac would end up going to prison for the sexual assault charges against him not very long after he was attacked. He believed wholeheartedly that Puffy and Biggie had just tried to put a hit out on him, and there was no changing his mind. To make matters worse, the guys in prison were constantly taunting him about it, saying things like, hey, I heard Biggie and Puffy shot you. And then Biggie Smalls released the song, Who Shot Ya?, and the lyrics could be seen as an admission of guilt. The problem was that that song was actually recorded months before Tupac was attacked. But Tupac didn't take it that way. He absolutely accepted this as an admission of guilt. Tupac's bail was set at $3 million, and he had nowhere near that money. So he ended up turning to somebody who he knew would have that money, Suge Knight. 
Suge Knight is like a big old bully. He's really tall and just a big dude. And he was fucking scary. Let me tell you more about him real quick. Marion Suge Knight was a music executive as well as co-founder and CEO of Death Row Records. You guys remember the group from the late 80s, early 90s called NWA that included Dr. Dre, the DOC, and Eazy-E? Well, they were part of the label Ruthless Records, which was run by Eazy-E. Dr. Dre and the DOC wanted to leave the NWA as well as Ruthless Records. So Suge Knight and his henchmen threatened Eazy-E and the NWA manager, Jerry Heller, with pipes and baseball bats to make them release Dre, the DOC, and another artist named Michelle from their contracts. And then Dr. Dre, the DOC, and Suge Knight co-founded Death Row Records in 1991. Suge Knight was also a football player. In fact, he played for the NFL for a little bit. He attended UNLV, which is the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, for two years, and then he played two games for the Rams in the NFL. After that, he worked as a concert promoter and a bodyguard for celebrities like Bobby Brown. He formed his own music publishing business in 1989, and one of his first big profits came when Vanilla Ice, whose real name is Robert Van Winkle, agreed to sign over royalties from his smash hit Ice Ice Baby, because the song included material that had actually been written by a guy named Mario Johnson, who was a client of Suge Knight's. Suge Knight and his bodyguards confronted Vanilla Ice multiple times to get that money, and it's rumored that they went to Vanilla Ice's hotel room and dangled him over the balcony by his ankles. Suge was closely associated with the Bloods. The Crips and the Bloods have been existing in Southern California since, like, the late 60s, and they would sometimes kind of coexist at Death Row Records. For example, Suge was very much associated with the Bloods, but then there was, like, Snoop Dogg who was associated with the Crips and they kind of just all hung out at the studio. But this would be affected by the East Coast-West Coast rivalry. Now, with Tupac in prison and unable to pay his bond, he contacted Suge Knight, and Suge saw this as a really great business opportunity. See, he already had the best producer in Los Angeles in Dr. Dre. Now, with Tupac, he could have the greatest rapper in Los Angeles and basically be the best record label in the world. Tupac agreed. In exchange for Death Row's legal services and bond, Tupac appointed Suge as his manager and signed on for three albums with Death Row Records. So now Suge is his manager and his label rep. Within a month, Tupac's bond would be paid and he would be set free. In reality, though, this was just a loan. It was like an advance on his future royalties, which just further bound him to Suge Knight. Tupac was still fuming over his belief that Biggie and Puffy had set him up to be attacked, so he pretty much started venting to Suge. And by this point, Suge was even more brazen and violent. In 1995, there was a party for Jermaine Dupri at a club called the Platinum House, which was attended by both members of Death Row Records and Bad Boy Entertainment. There was an altercation between them, and somebody ended up firing a gun, which would end up hitting a bodyguard and close friend of Suge Knight's named Jake Robles. Jake ended up dying, and Suge was 100% convinced that Puffy had actually ordered one of his own bodyguards to shoot him. This further ignited the East Coast-West Coast War. At the 1995 Source Awards, Suge went on stage to accept an award, and he began his speech by pledging to support Tupac. And then he said something to publicly diss Puff Daddy. Any artist out there want to be an artist, and want to stay a star, 
don't want to don't have to worry about the negative producer trying to be all in the video, all on the record, dancing. Come to Jeff Rock. Puffy really did like insert himself into the songs and the music videos of the artists that he was representing. But the big deal about this was that the Source Awards were taking place in Madison Square Garden, meaning that Suge dissed Puffy on Puffy's turf. Suge hadn't made any actual threats to Puffy, but he had a reputation and that scared the shit out of Puffy. And Death Row was fully allied with the Bloods by this point. So a few weeks after Suge dissed him publicly, Puffy hired a bunch of Crips as security for Biggie's upcoming concerts in Anaheim and San Diego. He also associated with a section of the Crips that were specifically against the Mob Pyru crew. The Mob Pyru bloods were associated with Suge Knight on the West Coast. So now Puffy is directly aligning himself with the Crips, and now the East Coast-West Coast rivalry has actual gang affiliation. Now that Puffy had the Crips on his side, he kind of got cocky and started flexing. At Biggie's show in Anaheim, Puffy publicly announced to a room full of Crips that he would do anything for the heads of Shook Knight and Tupac Shakur. It seemed like he wasn't being serious at first, but then when Shook's bodyguard Jake Robles died, and Shook accused one of Puffy's security guards as being behind it, and now Puffy's spouting off about he wants the head of Shook Knight, the Crips kind of started getting all pumped up, like they want to go after Shook and his guys. Before the whole gang thing came into play, it seems like everybody was mostly just in it for the music. At least Tupac, Puffy, Biggie, they were all passionate about the music. Suge Knight, I think he just was in it for business and money and power. Something I found interesting about Tupac, he considered himself Muslim for a time of his life, and then he considered himself Christian, and then he kind of went back to Muslim. I mention this because he was offered a role in the movie Menace to Society, but the role he was asked to play was that of a Muslim gangster. Tupac actually refused the role, saying that there is no such thing. According to him, if you are a gangster, you cannot be a Muslim. And I'm wondering if that had something to do with it. Like, like I wonder if maybe he felt like he was no longer worthy of calling himself a Muslim. In December 1995, Suge Knight had a Christmas party in his home, which was attended by a record promoter named Mark Anthony Bell. Suge went up to him and was like, let's go talk, and then he and his crew took him upstairs where they tied him to a chair and started beating the shit out of him. Then they forced him to drink Suge's urine out of a champagne flute. Suge demanded to know the address where Puffy and his family lived. See, it turns out that Mark Anthony Bell was a friend of Puff Daddy's. So at this point, it's very clear that Suge Knight is going after Puffy. For the record, Puffy denies having any involvement in the death of Jake Robles, but Suge Knight was convinced. This was partly why Tupac released the song Hit Em Up in 1996. This song was the first time that somebody really threatened the life of somebody else so violently and called them out so specifically. All you have to do is look out or listen to the lyrics to see that he calls out by name Puff Daddy, Biggie Smalls, Bad Boy Entertainment, along with others. This was a direct attack on them, and it was clear that he was serious. This was in no way to be taken lighthearted. He wanted to kill them. For the last minute and a half or so of the song, it's just Tupac talking, and as he goes, he's just getting angrier and louder and more aggressive. When Puffy first got associated with the Crips, he actually did it through a guy named Zip. So the story goes that Zip introduced Puffy to a guy named Keith Dwayne Davis, also known as Keefy D. 
Keefe D was known as the president of the South Side Crips, and he was also the contact person for the Crips when Puffy wanted to call them up for security. Every time Puffy went to Los Angeles, he would meet up with Keefe D at a restaurant, and they would have lunch, and they would talk about the East Coast-West Coast rivalry. One day, Puffy called up Keefe D for lunch, and this time, the conversation was more serious. Puffy explicitly offered him $1 million to kill Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur. This is according to Keefe D, by the way. Now, some people speculate that Puffy may not have been serious when he said this, and maybe he just needed to look tough but didn't actually expect Keefe D to kill them. Now that Puffy was surrounded by all these crips, he was feeling kind of bold, and he may have taken things a little bit too far. Regardless, Keefe D took him seriously, and the word got out. Whoever kills Tupac and Suge gets a million dollars from Puff Daddy. In July 1996, just a couple of months before Tupac's death, a couple of mob pyro bloods were hanging out at the Foot Locker at the Lakewood Mall in South LA. One of the guys, Trayvon Lane, was wearing a diamond-cut medallion with the Death Row logo, which was something that Suge Knight only gave to his inner circle. A group of Crips also happened to be at the mall that day and approached the Bloods in the Foot Locker. The group of Crips was led by Orlando Anderson, who happened to be the nephew of Keefe D, and he had also been charged with many attempted murders. Orlando wanted that death row necklace. There was a rumor that Puffy put out a $5,000 bond to whoever could bring him one, and this was corroborated by at least one confidential informant within the Crips. It is possible, though, that Orlando just wanted it as a personal trophy. Puffy had the Crips working for him, and he had now been talking a whole lot of shit about death row to them. So it's possible that this guy was just really pumped up about taking down Death Row. The eight Crips ended up stomping the three Bloods, and Orlando got away with the Death Row medallion. So now there's Crips stomping Bloods over a Death Row necklace. And Tupac, sadly, would end up inserting himself into the conflict on September 7th, 1996. On that evening, Tupac, Suge, and their entourage went to Las Vegas to see a Mike Tyson fight at the MGM Grand Casino. Keefe D also happened to go to that fight with his nephew, Orlando Anderson. And this wasn't even to kill Tupac or anything. It was just a coincidence. They always went to these fights. And they also always left their guns at home or in their hotels while they went to the fights. Tupac was on top of the world. He had just written the song Let's Get It On for Mike Tyson, and it would be played as he was coming out to the ring. So he was absolutely hyped. He's in these $1,000 seats with his buddies, song playing for Mike Tyson. Things could not be better. After the fight, Keefe D went out to dinner with his buddy Zip. Tupac and Suge were planning on going to Suge's nightclub 662. By the way, Club 662, if you're from Vegas, that is on 1700 East Flamingo Boulevard. That is exactly where Hamburger Mary's used to be. It's where Flair Nightclub used to be. It's been quite a few things, so you might have even been there. Anyway, the club was called 662 because if you look at a phone keypad, it spells out M-O-B, which is Member of Bloods. Everybody knew that Tupac and Suge and their entourage were heading over to Club 662 because Tupac was scheduled to perform there for a charity event that they were hosting, and Mike Tyson was even going to make an appearance to go see him. As Tupac, Suge, and their entourage are walking through the casino getting ready to head out towards the club, Trayvon Lane, the guy who had his necklace stolen, happened to spot Orlando Anderson in the casino. So he went up to Tupac and whispered in his ear that this was the guy that stole his necklace. All of a sudden, Tupac starts marching through the casino and just like runs up to Orlando and he says to him, you from the south? Before he punches him and knocks him to the ground. 
And following right behind him is Suge and the rest of the entourage who just jump in and start punching and kicking him, just beating him while he's down on the ground. And this is a huge mob of people. Like, you can see the security footage leading up to the event where Tupac's just kind of like marching through the casino. And this group behind him just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, people are just jumping in and following him. So as the group is attacking Orlando, the security starts to come out and this big group just flees. They start running through the casino towards the exits. What Tupac didn't know is that the guy he just attacked was the nephew of the guy who had just been hired to kill him. Somebody went and found Keefe D and told him that Orlando had just been attacked by Tupac and the Bloods. Keefe D was pissed. He immediately started plotting the revenge. Zip was like, I'll help. You want some help? And Keefe D was like, nah, man, we got this. And then Keefe D is like, hey, this would be a really good opportunity to cash in on those million dollars. So they go out to the parking lot and Zip goes to his car and pulls out a gun from his secret compartment and he hands it to Keefe D. Keefe D and Orlando got into a white Cadillac along with Orlando's friends Terrence Brown and DeAndre Smith and they started driving around looking for Suge and Tupac. Tupac and Suge had decided to ride together in Suge's black BMW, which meant that their security was left to travel in separate vehicles. Their entourage would consist of at least six vehicles. Orlando and Keefe D, in their white Cadillac, headed straight to Club 662 and pulled up in the parking lot. They waited somewhere like 5 to 15 minutes, and Tupac didn't show up. So they decided to head over to the liquor store. Tupac's caravan would head north on Las Vegas Boulevard. Tupac and Suge are blasting their music, just enjoying the Las Vegas traffic. And then they got pulled over because their music was so loud. As they were on the side of the road, some fans recognized them. And people started shouting, there's Tupac, look, there's Suge Knight. Orlando and Keefe D actually heard the fans calling their name and they turned to look and there they saw Tupac hanging out of his sunroof. According to two female witnesses who were at the scene, Tupac said to them, hey, we're going to Club 662, come with us. So these girls, they're in a green car, they kind of start following along with Tupac and try to join their caravan, but they unintentionally kind of cut off some of the security. So one of the cars with the security kind of starts to motion to them, letting them know, like, hey, let us get ahead of you. But then the caravan started to turn right onto Flamingo Boulevard. So the girls turn right with the caravan, and then they kind of try to get over into the next lane. They got over just as they were approaching the next stoplight, which was Koval Lane. So picture this. In the left-hand lane, there are six vehicles, and the second vehicle has Tupac and Suge. Suge is in the driver's seat, and Tupac's in the passenger seat. Now these girls pull into the center lane and they are the very first car in that lane. So they are one car ahead and to the right of Tupac and Suge. Just as the girls pull past the black BMW, a white Cadillac pulls up behind them and starts firing shots into the black BMW. In the white Cadillac was Keefe D in the passenger seat and right behind him was Orlando Anderson in the back seat. And then his buddy DeAndre was in the back seat on the driver's side. Keefe D was getting ready to fire the shots at Tupac, but because he was in the passenger seat, he wasn't able to, like, reach across and do it. So he handed the gun back to DeAndre, who was on the driver's side, but DeAndre kind of chickened out and was like, nope, I'm not doing it. Then Orlando took the gun out of his hand, reached across him, and shot out the window nine times. Four of those shots hit Tupac. Suge Knight looked over into the car, and he looked right into the eyes of Keefe D. The girls in the green car heard the gunshots and instinctively tried to pull forward and turn right onto Koval, 
but the white Cadillac also tried to turn right and speed ahead of them, almost causing a collision. One of the cars with Tupac's security, who were also mob pyrus, tried to chase after the car, and both cars started shooting at each other. And the girls in the green vehicle are freaking out because they're right in the middle of the crossfire. In another car from Tupac's caravan was a bodyguard named Frank Alexander. He got out of his car and ran over to check on Tupac. But at that moment, Shook Knight slammed on the gas and he did a U-turn and he tried to flee. But one of his tires had been shot, so he lost control and hit a concrete median. And Shook had been grazed by one of the bullets, too, in his face. When the police showed up, they immediately assumed that Suge and his crew were the perpetrators and they threw them to the ground and handcuffed them as Tupac sat bleeding in the passenger seat. Tupac was really calm. He had been shot before and he was kind of just telling everybody else, it's going to be okay. The white Cadillac with Orlando and Keefe D ended up getting away. They parked the car a little ways away, they stashed their guns, and then they walked back to the crime scene to watch the aftermath. Then they went back to their hotel room, they got drunk, they smoked weed all night, and then the next day they went back to retrieve the murder weapon and clean up the shell casings. And they didn't really tell anybody after that. Except Orlando. Orlando kind of bragged. He went back to LA, told everybody about how he was the one that killed Tupac. There was even like family gatherings where he would tell everybody and Keefe D would have to tell him to shut the fuck up. By the time the ambulance arrived, Tupac was still conscious, but he soon slipped into a coma. He was taken to the UMC Trauma Hospital in Las Vegas, where he died six days later on September 13, 1996. He was only 25 years old. Orlando Anderson was a suspect early on. However, it was street code not to snitch, so nobody would give up any information to the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Not only that, but presumably they didn't even really want to get involved, and they kind of took this as, let the gangs handle it among the gangs. The day after Tupac died, a group of mob pyro bloods met up at Looters Park in Los Angeles and discussed the death of Tupac at the hands of Orlando Anderson, a Crip. At that moment, they declared open season on the Crips. When Keefe D and Zip went back to Los Angeles, they went out for lunch and Puff Daddy called them up. He asked them, was that us? And Keefe D told him, yeah, that was us. Puffy was apparently pretty pleased to hear that news. So Keefe D told Zip, go get that money. And Zip was like, okay, okay, I'll go get it. But then a few weeks had passed. So Keefe D hit up Zip again and was like, hey, where's that money? And Zip was like, oh, you know, Puffy didn't give it to me yet. As time went on, they kind of became distant and Keefe D never got his money. Later on, though, it was rumored that Zip did indeed receive a payment, but he never paid the bounty to Keefe or Orlando. Biggie Smalls was absolutely crushed when Tupac died just heartbroken. He wrote songs about it, and he didn't really understand exactly what happened that resulted in his death. According to Keefe D, Biggie was never involved in any of these conversations about Tupac and his death. It was all Puffy, Zip, and him, Keefe D. Suge Knight now wanted to get back at Puffy for taking his greatest artist, so he decided to take Puffy's biggest artist, Biggie Smalls. However, Suge was caught on surveillance participating in the beating of Orlando Anderson at the MGM, meaning he was violating his parole. So he was sent back to prison. But he had a whole network of connections, so he was able to plot the death of Biggie Smalls from prison with the help of his associate, who goes by the alias Teresa Swan. Teresa was an accomplice in many of Suge's schemes. She had committed fraud and perjury in the past and had a dozen fake identities. 
She's also the mother of one of Suge's children. Suge had like assigned Teresa as his legal representation so that she would be able to go visit him in prison and not be recorded or supervised in any way. Six months after Tupac's death, Biggie and Puffy kind of had a false sense of security with Tupac dead and Suge Knight in jail. They decided to travel to Los Angeles on business where they were going to record some music and shoot some scenes for the new Hypnotize video. They also planned to attend the Soul Train Awards. Suge Knight was aware that Biggie was going to be at the Soul Train Awards because Biggie was expected to present an award to Tony Braxton, and there was also a big party the following night where he was likely to show up as well. Biggie Smalls was trying to be an actor at this point, and there were a lot of opportunities and connections to network at that party. That party ended up being completely overcrowded. There were thousands of people, including a ton of celebrities. And there was also a big group of people who could not get in. They couldn't fit in. So this big group outside, which, by the way, included gang members, it started to get pretty rowdy. At around midnight, the fire marshal showed up and shut down the party. Biggie and Puffy started to head out and got into their cars around 1230 a.m. The entourage included three SUVs with Puffy in the first car, Biggie in the second car, and additional security in the third car. The vehicle that Puffy was in kind of got on the road a little bit faster than the other two, so the two cars in the back kind of struggled to keep up with him. All of a sudden, a white SUV cut in between the second and third cars, and the third car didn't want to allow that, so they sped up ahead of it. Then, a dark-colored Chevy Impala pulled up to the second vehicle, the one that had Biggie in it, and the driver reached out of his window with the gun in his hand and fired into the car that had Biggie in it. After firing, the car made a quick right onto Wilshire Boulevard. The security team in the third car tried to chase after them, but they ended up losing them. Biggie's vehicle is now at a stop, and Puffy's vehicle, which was up ahead, had made a U-turn to return to the crime scene. He got out of his car and ran over to Biggie's door, and he saw that Biggie had been shot and was now unresponsive. The entourage drove him to the Cedars-Sinai Hospital and arrived within five minutes. At 1.15 a.m., doctors had notified Puffy that Biggie Smalls had died. The autopsy report showed that Biggie had been shot four times. The fatal shot entered near his hip and went upward towards his shoulder, hitting his heart and lung on the way. He likely died just moments after being shot. He was only 24 years old. In 1997, Bad Boy Entertainment released the song I'll Be Missing You, featuring Puff Daddy, singer Faith Evans, who was Biggie's wife, and 112 in memory of Biggie Smalls. Russell Poole theorized that the person responsible for Biggie's death was an L.A. police officer named David Mack, along with his friend Amir Muhammad. He wrote a book about this. It's called Labyrinth. However, this theory would be debunked, and it's all explained in Murder Rap. However, since Russell Poole was now pointing a finger at LAPD, Biggie's mother, Valletta Wallace, actually filed a lawsuit for wrongful death against the LAPD. She sued them for half a billion dollars. So now the LAPD needed this case to be solved. The investigation was federalized and Detective Greg Kading was put in charge of a task force to solve the murder of Biggie Smalls. In reality, though, it wasn't so much to solve the murder as it was to clear the LAPD of involvement of the crime. It was in the process of investigating the murder of Biggie Smalls that Kading unintentionally discovered who murdered Tupac as well. During the investigation, Kading kept coming across this name, and it seemed that this witness was one of the only people who was 
present both when Biggie died as well as when Tupac died. That person was Keefe D. Kading knew that the DEA was already looking at Keefe D, so he set up a fake purchase. They set up a confidential informant to go to Keefe D to buy a gallon worth of PCP. The deal was done with no problems, and then a few days later, Kading showed up at his house with the DEA. And they laid out all the evidence of the drug deal to show Keefe D that they had more than enough to put him away for life. And then Kading told him, there is a way out there. We are homicide investigators. And that was it. They said that and then they left. They never told him what murders they were investigating. Less than an hour after Kading left his house, Keefe D's attorney called and said that Keefe was ready to talk. Before Kading met up with him, he let him sweat it out for like a month. He wanted Keefe D to sit around and wonder what murder they were talking about. The next time he met up with him, he revealed that he was investigating the murder of Biggie Smalls. Keefe said, that one wasn't us. So then Kading's like, well, which one was? And Keefe D said, what I'm going to tell you is going to blow your fucking mind. He really said that. This is when Keefe revealed the whole story about Orlando shooting Tupac following the fight at MGM following the attack on Trayvon Lane at the Foot Locker. Kading didn't turn over the information on Pudoc, Pudoc, Tupac right away because that meant losing Keefe D as a source. Plus, they kind of knew that the Las Vegas Metro Police Department didn't really care that, that much about this case. Now that Kading knew that Puffy was involved in the death of Tupac, he was sure that Suge Knight was involved in the murder of Biggie. All he needed was to find someone who would talk. And that's when he found Teresa Swan. Now, Teresa was terrified. She would not have said anything to the police because she was, of course, terrified of Suge Knight and what he would do to her. But the police were able to get her to talk. When Suge Knight was in prison, death row started to crumble and he ended up having to file for bankruptcy. There were some master tapes and some property that weren't included in the bankruptcy and Teresa kept them safe in storage. The police found out that she was involved in Suge's bankruptcy fraud and they used that against her. Teresa revealed that she knew exactly who killed Biggie Smalls because she was the one who hired and paid the guy under Suge's direction. This was a guy named Wardell Faust, who was known as Poochie. He was a friend of Suge's, an enforcer suspected of multiple murders on Suge's payroll. By the account of many people, Poochie was the guy that Suge always called to take care of problem people. One time, Suge called him up just because a guy was annoying him. It was like some musical artist who just kept showing up and like, hey, listen to my tape. Hey, hey, what's the update? Hey, got any, got any news? And Suge just got tired of him, so he called up Poochie, and Poochie took care of him. Witnesses said that Poochie would show up, have a quiet, private conversation with Suge, and then leave, and then soon after, someone would die. So if Suge wanted to have anyone killed, Poochie was the guy he would have called. Teresa paid Poochie $13,000 for the murder. The contract was for $25,000, so it's believed that Teresa may have kept the other $12,000 for her part in the job. Now, knowing who killed both Tupac and Biggie Smalls, why didn't anybody get arrested? Well, here's why. Orlando Anderson, the crip who killed Tupac, died two years later. Poochie was also dead. He died in 2003 in a drive-by shooting. So the only people he could possibly go after now are Suge Knight and Puff Daddy, which is hard because they're celebrities and that's going to bring a lot of attention. 
Kading ended up being taken off of the case after an internal affairs investigation. He misquoted a witness and they were able to use that to remove him. They never assigned a new lead detective to the case and it was shelved within a year. Greg Kading retired from the LAPD in 2010. Now that it was known that LAPD was not responsible for the death of Biggie Smalls, the judge dismissed the wrongful death suit in April 2010 as there were, quote, no changes or new leads. Tupac's body was cremated the next day. Members of the outlaws mixed in some of his ashes with marijuana and smoked it in a blunt, recalling a line in his song, Black Jesus. There are a few conspiracy theories out there. For example, there's one theory that says that Suge Knight actually was the one who organized Tupac's death because Tupac was going to leave death row, supposedly. This has been looked into, and it's just very unlikely. I mean, if death row wanted to get rid of Tupac, they probably could have gotten him locked up in jail again. Plus, it would also be strange for Suge Knight to put himself in a vehicle next to Tupac and then have him be shot at nine times. There are also theories that Tupac is still alive. There are entire threads like on Reddit where you can read more about the theories. People have pictures of supposed sightings of him after his death. Some people believe that he's in Cuba. Others believe that he is hiding out in Malaysia. There is also a filmmaker who believes that Tupac escaped from the UMC hospital in Las Vegas and went to New Mexico to hide out with the Navajo tribe. His documentary is coming out, I believe, later this year. So there you have it. Tupac was killed by a crip. Biggie was killed by a blood. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really appreciate your patience with me. I'm going to do my best not to leave you hanging for so long, but be advised, I am getting married next month. So I might take a short break, but I promise I'll keep you updated on the Facebook page. Don't forget that you can always go to brokenlimelight.com to see an almost complete transcript of today's episode, along with photos and videos of interviews and things of that sort. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Today's episode is brought to you by Hunt a Killer. Hunt a Killer is a monthly mystery subscription box that's truly one of a kind. It's basically like a true crime case in a box. It comes with case files, codes to decipher, detailed backgrounds about the suspects and the victims. There's evidence for you to evaluate. It tells an immersive story of a whole crime case from beginning to end. It's kind of like an escape room in a box. You can do this by yourself, or you can team up with a buddy, or you can do it for like a game night or even a date night. You can take a little break from technology and immerse yourself fully into this box. Or if you prefer to be a more high-tech investigator, you can join online communities and talk to other Hunt a Killer players about clues and stuff. Hunt a Killer also shares part of the proceeds to the Cold Case Foundation, so your purchase actually helps with real-life cold cases. The best news is that Broken Limelight listeners get 20% off of their first subscription box. So go get started now at huntakiller.com and don't forget to use the code BROKENLIMELIGHT to get your 20% off. That's Broken Limelight, all one word.